Please be seated. Music is setting us up for the next few weeks as we go through this new series. Let me uh, pray with you as we begin. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for your presence. You are worthy, and we worship you. We pray that through this time together, we will be open in our hearts and minds to hear what you have to say and also to be worshiping constantly. We ask God that you will lead us, reveal your word, reveal yourself, allow us to sense your close presence, and we give you permission to move freely among us in any way you choose. We pray in Jesus' holy name, amen. You ever watched a, a TV series or a movie, and when you got to the end, you said, what was that all about? I have no idea what they were trying to say. You might feel like that when you read through parts of Revelation. It's a little like that. Some parts are anything but clear. But over the next couple of months, we're going to try uh, to tear some of that apart and have a look at it and uh, make sense of some of that. Today we're beginning a new series on the book of Revelation. It's really part two of what we started last spring. If you remember last spring, we looked at chapters one, two, and three of the book of Revelation. It was all about uh, Jesus encouraging and admonishing the seven specific churches in Asia Minor and uh, the implication of what Jesus was saying there and, and what it means to us now. We spent quite a bit of time on that. Um, but now, we're preparing for an even more difficult journey. Uh, this second part, as you go through Revelation, you'll find that there are going to be times when it's hard, and I don't want you to give up. Think about today is, is really a day of equipping. Today is a day for getting ready for going through that journey. It, it's kind of like if you're going to go hiking in the mountains, and you're going to be a long way from from civilization, you want to have a certain equipment with you, right? You want to have good boots on. You want to make sure you carry some water. You want to make sure maybe you have, a, if your cell phone doesn't work, you might have to have some other kind of radio as, a, as some kind of an emergency backup. You want to have supplies if you're going to go on a difficult journey. And that's what today is all about. Some of this will be a little bit of review from last year, but, but uh, I want to give you some tools so that as we enter into this study, uh, you're not going to be ill-equipped. You'll have a really good idea of where we're going and how we're going to get there. Let's start with a bit of review to, uh, to get us ready. Uh, John had a vision of Jesus who told him to write to these seven churches. If you look, uh, look there, you can see up on the central part, a little bit left, Pergamum. Thyatira, Sardis, Smyrna, Philadelphia, Ephesus, and Laodicea. And of course, just off the coast in the Aegean Sea is the island of Patmos, where John was. Now, this whole book of Revelation is written to these seven churches, not just the first three chapters. The uh, first three chapters are kind of pastoral, and then it moves into this next section, but it's all for all of these churches. And every one of these churches would have seen what Jesus sent to the other churches because this is what they call a circular. It would have been sent ashore and somebody would have taken it from church to church to church and they all would have read everything that Jesus wrote or everything that Jesus asked John to write. Um, do you remember these seven churches and what they were told? Do you remember all the details? 
You, you didn't sit in the bathtub last night and memorize this because you knew it was coming? All right. All right. Well, then we're going to have to take a look at that and see what, what he wrote. Church of Ephesus, uh, in chapter 2, Jesus talked about them having forsaken its lost love or its first love. And he says, remember how you were at first? Remember how hot that love was? Remember how intense it was? And he says, well, well, you've lost that love. And you need to regain that love. To the church of Smyrna, he says, I recognize that you guys are suffering. You have been through so much. You're doing great work. Keep going, he's saying to those people. At Pergamum, he says, hey, you're compromising your Christian faith. There's some stuff going on here in the church, and you're allowing it to happen, and you're not addressing it, and you're just kind of blending stuff together, and you need to fix that. They were allowing people to, to uh, take Christianity and blend it with the worship of the gods, and, and that just doesn't wash with the Lord. So he was saying, you need to fix that. In Thyatira, he uh, addresses specifically a false prophet or a prophetess. This woman that they called Jezebel. They gave her the nickname Jezebel because she was so much like the Old Testament Jezebel. She was leading people astray and getting them to worship idols and things like that. And he says, you need to fix this. You need to stop this woman. Even put her out of the congregation. You need to make that happen. Philadelphia, he, he commends them for enduring patiently. They've been through a lot of suffering. And uh, they've had an attack by a local Jewish synagogue. Uh, in fact, he even calls it the synagogue of Satan. He's, he's really addressing the 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 stuff that's going on with these poor people. Uh, they had been shut out. They couldn't buy or sell food. They, they were starving, and yet they were in the midst, midst of this beautiful, prosperous city. And then finally, we get to Laodicea, the church, the lukewarm church. Uh, you might remember Laodicea was famous. It had an aqueduct that came in, brought its water over miles and miles and miles, and by the time it got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm in taste, and it had a lot of minerals in it. It tasted yuck, and people drank it literally to make themselves throw up. And Jesus says, unless you fix your faith, unless it gets warm again, unless it gets hot, I will spew you out of my mouth. It's a pretty big warning. And so the churches were left messages like, remember where you were before you fell. Remember that relationship with Jesus when it was hot, when you first knew him. Remember how much in love with Jesus you were. Repent and find that first love again. Serve Jesus with the same passion that you once had. Be fearless in the face of persecution. Hold on. Be faithful to Jesus no matter what comes. Do your church discipline. Don't engage in idolatry. Be watchful of sin in your lives. Submit to the Holy Spirit and submit to the authority of the Word of God. Warm up your faith or I will reject you. That's a warning. Now, if I turn these into questions and starting asking you about it, um, which of these messages do you think doesn't belong to the church today? Which ones should we just throw out? Which ones should we ignore and say, ah, that doesn't apply to us, that only applies to them? None of them, right? 
Now, you got to remember, the Bible wasn't written to you. Like God didn't say, you know, dear Ivan, here's what I want you to do. No, God wrote to a specific person or a specific group of people, a specific audience in mind. However, the Bible was written for you. God preserved what he wrote to that specific audience. And its principles and its lessons are all eternal. Like we can apply all that stuff today. Um, It was written a long time ago, but it has direct application to the life we're living right now. So let me ask you, is your faith strong? Do you have the same love for Jesus that you had when you started? Are you passionate about your faith? How's your courage? How's your courage in the face of what might possibly be at some point in the near future intense persecution like so many are experiencing all over the world? How would you fare if that happened here? Did you know that that above the original seven churches written about in Revelation, not a single one exists anymore? There are churches in those places, but the original churches that had so much influence in the region, they're all gone. That there's been intense persecution. Now, this is all in the area that we call Turkey today. They're all within that borderline. And there has been such intense persecution from the day that this was written until the present day that they are still listed on on the endangered Christians list with Voice of the Martyred, if you have a look. Today, there are only 0.2% Christians. 0.2%. It was so heavily influenced by Christianity in Jesus' day. Before 1915, there was a huge, prosperous Christian community. And then there was a thing called the Armenian Genocide. It started in 1915. And over a million and a half Christians were murdered. A million and a half. And we think, that can't happen to us. That can't happen to us. But the truth is, what happened to them may someday happen be facing us. We'll talk about that a little more as we get further into Revelation, but you know that the tide can turn against us, and so we need to learn to have courage in the face of trials. Now, to take a different direction here, Eugene Peterson looked at this, this whole book. He is a, guy's a great, was a great scholar, and, and he looked at this book, and he said, you know, there's, this is very pastoral. You know, John, at one point, was in charge of all of those seven churches that he writes to. He was kind of the overseer, or we would call him a bishop today. And, and at one point, he may have even pastored a church like Ephesus. And John has a pastor's heart. And so when Jesus gives his message to be passed on to these seven churches, he's starting where John's heart is. And so throughout, uh, I encourage you to keep that in mind. You're going to see some things he'll say to the churches as we go along and as these, these terrible things begin to happen, that, that it's like he's showing them how to negotiate. I, I mean, and I don't mean you know, compromise negotiate, but how to negotiate, how to get through, how to navigate what's coming. Well, you remember the whole thing started with a vision. 
Jesus gave John a vision when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Patmos is that little island on the Aegean Sea just offshore. And he was on that island because he would not stop preaching the gospel of Jesus. The first three chapters that we look through are pastoral, as I've said. From chapter four on, it feels like a different book. It goes in a lot of different directions, but it's not. And we'll see how that all connects. But sometimes it feels a little bit like a different story. So how do we understand this book? I would like to introduce to you an idea of Revelation as a symphony. Any of you like classical music? Okay. Some applause back there. <laughs> well, symphonies are a larger form of musical composition. Uh, they have different parts. They have different movements. And they're usually marked by a, by a dramatic change in the music. And so you know you've moved into a different mo movement. It's, it's not hard to tell. It's either gotten softer. It's gotten louder. Some kind of instrument has suddenly burst in. You know that we're in a different movement. Now, if you don't know classical music, maybe you know Queen's song, Bohemian Rhapsody. Any of you know that? One or two of you? Three or four of you? It starts off with Freddie doing a soft intro, moves into a ballad, shifts into an operatic movement. Brian May starts wailing away at the guitar and the hard rock part, and it finishes with this beautiful, soft, reflective ballad or coda with Freddie singing again. So it moves through all these different parts. And each part has its own little story. You're welcome for the earworm. Well, that's kind of how the book of Revelation moves. It begins with Jesus, and it ends with Jesus. It has movements that are greatly violent, and it has other movements that are very peaceful. And there are some filled with great awe and worship, and sometimes there's just turmoil, and it's hard to figure out but just because there's a lot of flash and thunder doesn't mean that Jesus isn't there. Jesus is there, and he's very much a part of it all the way through from one end to the other. In fact, this whole book is really about Jesus. Now, we need to be careful not to take our bias into the book. Nobody ever does that here, right? <laughs> we don't want to take our bias into the book. Our daughter, Stephanie, played oboe with the Lower Marian Symphony for several years, and, and uh, we had the privilege of hearing her play on numerous occasions. Uh, the funny thing was, we'd always come home saying, you know the best part of that concert? The oboe. At any given time, there were 66 other instruments, but we came home hearing the oboe, because we are parents of an oboist. Now, if you were a parent of a bassoonist, you'd come away saying, the best part was the bassoon, <laughs> right? That's how we think as parents. Well, we usually go into revelation like that. We have these preconceived ideas. We have these preconceived expectations. And we go into revelation, it's very easy to read our bias into it. And so we come away with our favorite bits and pieces. We remember the fancy angels. We remember the mark of the beast. We remember the worship scene in the throne room of God. We remember the blood moons or the promises at the end of the book. But we remember something more than we remember other things. If you want to get the most out of the book of Revelation, you have to know this. Every part of it is important. Every little bit. 
So don't get so focused on, it's easy to get lost in the details in Revelation because there's so much there. You know, if we pulled apart here on a Sunday morning all the little pieces, we'd be here for the next seven years. But we're going to hit some of the high points, some of the themes. Don't get so focused on the little details that you get lost or that you miss the main themes, the big point, the big picture. We want to come out the other end understanding that this is not a book to be afraid of. This is a book of encouragement and hope. Death is defeated. Satan is defeated. Jesus wins. And there's a new heaven and a new earth. You know, in our last season, um, we, we looked at a lot of those details, but we're going to do kind of a macro look, the big picture look as we go through this year. Um, yes, Revelation is about the beginning of the end, but it's also about the beginning of the beginning. That whole last part is a brand new beginning. So let's get into the book. The opening phrases, the opening verses of Revelation tell us something about Jesus' reason for having John write this. So if you want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, we're going to take a look at the first three verses together. Revelation chapter 1. This is how John begins the book. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to the heart what is written in it, because the time is near. We are in the last days. Do you believe that? That Jesus' return could be imminent. It could happen today. It could happen at any time. And that's why the scripture constantly tells us to be prepared, to be ready, to have our hearts ready. The word apocalypse is the first word in this book. Apocalypse. Well, when we think about that, if in the movies, apocalypse means the end of the world. Everything falls down, everything blows up, everything happens like that. The earth is destroyed, all the life is killed. But the word apocalypse means to reveal. It means to reveal knowledge or reveal something hidden, to lift the veil so that you can see behind it and see what's going on. Revelation. So we're going to get a chance to peek behind the curtain to see things that only God normally gets to see. He's showing us these things that have been hidden from us up until this point. You know, we, we sometimes assume, well, the end of the book is fire and destruction and judgment. It ends, well, badly. But it actually ends with hope and promise and recreation, a new heaven and a new earth where we live in the visible presence, face to face with God. That's amazing. That's, that's what I anticipate. Well, here's what, what Jesus told John about writing this down. He said, write therefore what you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later. What you've seen, what is now, and what will take place later on. And that's how we're going to kind of break this down this morning. 
What have you seen? What have you seen? Think about it from John's perspective. You know, this is a vision. Visions in the Bible are not like watching a movie. They don't follow sequentially. They don't necessarily have the same storyline all the way through. But they are visible in some way. And they use a lot of symbolism. And sometimes that symbolism is explained and sometimes it's not. You might remember there's a vision that was given to Peter back in Acts chapter 10. Peter and, and Paul had been having a disagreement. Peter was getting rebuked from Paul because he wasn't eating with the Gentiles. He refused to eat with the Gentiles, and therefore he wasn't able to share Jesus with the Gentiles. And, and, and he goes off in a stomp, and Paul goes the other way. And as he's traveling along the road, he gets hungry. He goes into this place. He goes up on the roof, and, and, and he has a, a time of prayer while he's waiting for food to be prepared. And as he's praying, he sees this vision and here's what he says. He says, I saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then the voice told me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter was horrified because it seemed to be suggesting that he should eat foods that he was forbidden to eat as a Jew. They were, they were unclean, and he couldn't eat with the Gentiles because they were unclean. They weren't the people of God. If we received a vision like that, we'd wonder, what in the world was that about? But to Peter, as he, as he went along the next day, he began to understand that, that what God was saying to him in that vision was that God does not show favoritism. The gospel of Jesus is for everyone. And therefore, it's okay to go ahead and share meals with the Gentiles because that's the place where you're going to get to share about Jesus. Don't call unclean anything that I have called clean. It's following God first, right? And so the gospel of Jesus spread through Peter. Visions can jump around with their topics. Sometimes right in the middle of the passage, they'll change subject. And then you get to the bottom of the passage and they've gone back to the original subject. It's, they move around. You know, we live in a life where we have to put one foot in front of the other. That's how we go through time. But God isn't restricted by time and space. God moves freely about his universe any way that he wants. And so in Revelation, sometimes John sees something that has already happened, and sometimes he sees something that applies to the current situation in Asia Minor right then and there, and then sometimes he sees what's happening in the future. And all that stuff is sometimes jumbled together. It's about what John saw. The important thing is not to focus on what comes next, but on what John sees next. Because he's not in control of this. God is in control of this, and God is giving him what he's supposed to write down. And he writes it down as he, he's not trying to break it down and explain everything. He's just trying to be faithful and follow God and write down what God tells him to write. So, Jesus tells him also to write what is now, there are some people when they look at the book of Revelation, they think everything in the book of Revelation has to do with what they were going through here and now in that space. I don't happen to be one of those people, but 
there are some who've tried to kind of write all the extra stuff off as only visionary, as only symbolic, and I, and I think we end up in some trouble as we go towards the back end of the book because the back end of the book is all about the future. It's all about what's coming. But he does write about what's now. Jesus tells him to write the things that were happening in his day and age. What was going on right now? What was now for John? Think about it. What was the time period in which John was living? What was going on around him? Well, we know this was a time of pretty severe persecution. It would come in waves, and sometimes one region would get the persecution, and then you know, it sort of shift, and another region would get the persecution, and then there were times where, the, where throughout the whole empire there was persecution. We've already said that John was banished to this little island in the Aegean Sea. And he was kind of lucky when you compare him to what happened to some of the other apostles. Some were imprisoned and tortured and put to death for preaching Jesus. We know from the book of Acts that, that Herod had James killed by the sword. Peter was imprisoned and then later crucified in Rome. Paul was imprisoned and stoned and eventually put to death in Rome. Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the gospel, for preaching about Jesus, for keeping the faith. Rome occupied the entire known world, and in some places, Christians died for refusing to give in to the pagan practices that were the law. Like in Smyrna that we talked about. Smyrna was one of the world's most beautiful ancient places and Christians were banned from buying and selling in the marketplace, and they lived in poverty for refusing to worship the emperor and the gods of the temples. You know that part that's coming we haven't got to yet, where you're not allowed to buy or sell unless you have the mark of the beast? There was a little ticket they had to have if they were going to be officially allowed to buy or sell in the marketplace, and part of that passage grows out of that practice. See, that's the now for John. This is the world that John lived in. And so some of the book addresses the persecution that's happening right there and then. And then the last part, John was told to write about what will take place later. What will take place later? What's going to happen? This is the part that we all think of when we think of prophecy, right? We always think about the future. But at least a third of prophecy throughout the scriptures, in fact, in the Old Testament, sometimes it's more than that, um, the, the significant portion of what was said in prophecy was proclaiming God's word and passing on God's word to God's people. It wasn't always about the future. Sometimes there was a tag at the end of what God shared with them. If you don't change and become like this, this is what's going to happen. But it was always about God's will for his people. It isn't always a promise of doom. The promise of doom is not for the believer, except if martyred. There's that comforting point. The promise of doom was for those who reject God and refuse to follow God. But for the believer, there is a promise with a hope and a future and a Savior forever. The latter part of the book tells us about God building a new future with a new heaven and earth somehow joined together 
where there's no more death and no more pain and no more tears. Jesus told John to write about what he saw, past, present, and future. And we have to understand that we serve the God of history. He's been there from the beginning of creation and beyond that. We'll never know how eternity breaks down because eternity is forever. But he's had a relationship with the people he created from the very moment he created them. And our God is the God of present. He moves in our lives right now constantly. As we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he transforms us and he empowers us to do the things that he asks through the power of his Holy Spirit. And God is also the God of the future. He knows what's coming. He knows every single day in your life before one of them ever came to be. We talked about that last week. This week, we've been putting our gear on. We're getting ready to climb a mountain. We're going a long, long, difficult hike. We're collecting things we need for the journey. But next week, we're going to step behind that veil and step into the throne room of God. There's only two places that you find that is right here where we're going, and in the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. You might want to go back and review that if you have the opportunity to read it. It's a good preparation. I encourage you to read ahead. I encourage you to read ahead to chapter 4 of the book of Revelation for next week. And, and if you have a chance, go back and read the first three chapters. But it's a good place to be to get ready for the journey. I hope you're ready, because I think it's going to be an amazing time together. It's going to encourage our faith, build us up in, in ways that we really need to be built up, and it's going to point us to what God's going to do. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we start this difficult journey together, we ask for your leadership, for your wisdom, for your discernment, so we can separate the wrath from the love, so we can separate the destroyed from the rebuilt. Lord, burn away any dross in us. Refine us like pure gold. Allow us to be yours no matter what comes. And that the message over and over and over again is to be ready in our hearts to have received Jesus and to submit ourselves to him. Preserve us to be able to stand with you at the end of time for this earth. And as time is reborn in a new heaven and a new earth, Create in me, Lord, a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.